Welcome back, everyone, to the T and Lee Show. I'm here. Liam's here. Liam, how you feeling, bud? I'm doing all right. I'm I'm pushing through the fatigue. You know, it's been a, a long week, but I'm you know this is rejuvenating me. How are you, Seymour? I'm feeling good. Yeah, I mean, we were talking on the phone, and you've had a lot of phone calls. So, this, yeah, I think you're going to be well practiced in the part of the phone call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is my favorite one. Oh, good. I'm glad. All right. So, All-Star Games feels like it happened so long ago. So, I just want to hit on a couple of the events, and then we'll break down a bunch of different NBA teams who we think can make a run at the playoffs, and then our normal show is always. So, let's start with the rookies game. I didn't watch this whole game. All I saw was that Zion broke a hoop and the end of the game turned into a dunk contest. What were your favorite parts of watching the rookies and sophomores game? Well, first of all, I'm glad that Zion played. I remember we talked last week, and I wasn't sure, and I don't know why I was so doubtful. I just heard some rumblings that they were going to try to hold him out, but thankfully they didn't. We got a little Zion. Kind of surprisingly, maybe not too surprisingly, Trey and Luca, two all-star starters, weren't quite as I don't I'm hesitant to use the word impressive because it wasn't that they weren't impressive they just didn't really I feel like try as hard as some of the other rookies and sophomores Miles Bridges was awesome favorite play of the game was when he was on a fast break and he just chucked the ball off the backboard to himself in traffic and caught it with his weak hand cocked it back and just threw it down it's pretty awesome I just love how they the guys on both sides really were trying so hard to just dunk on anyone in front of them. They were pulling up. It was entertaining, kind of a miniature version of the All-Star game. It was cool. Zion tried a bunch of dunks at the end of the game. Unfortunately, he was not able to finish any of them, but they were the most impressive misses I've ever seen. True. Yeah, I think he probably just had too much hype, and then it's like, when he missed the first one, there was just too much to, to go and make another spectacular one. So that was fun. Yeah. And I bet Danny Griffin was, like, shaking in his boots and just peeing his pants. I think that at the end of that game, the GM and coach of every one of those young players was just, like, literally chewing their nails in extreme nervous anxiousness that no one would do anything dumb. And they really were kind of doing some dumb things, to be honest. But I guess nothing bad happened, so we're good. Yeah, exactly, and they're they're in their twenties, so if they, even if they get hurt, it's, it's all yeah, it's that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so the skills challenge is really fun. We had four bigs advancing, which I'm sure that you are very happy about, Liam. And Bam Adebayo ended up winning, which was very exciting. He seems like a, a good guy. To the, this night was a big night for the Miami Heat, as we'll get into later, but. Uh, what did you think of the skills challenge and Bam being able to bring home the win? It was pretty entertaining. I do like how they have it kind of in a matchup style, like almost like a mini bracket with the eight of them. The big really proving how skilled you need to be no matter what position you play in the NBA. You need to be able to pass the ball as, as you should uh, and dribble up and down the court and shoot from a decent range. Bam showed really why the Heat have kind of opened up his responsibilities a little bit offensively. You know, there's times where he's almost playing like a mini point forward for them. You know, not quite what Draymond has done for the Warriors, but almost a slightly lesser version of that. 
as far as his responsibility with the ball, you know, in his hands, orchestrating different parts of their offense. And it really showed. And I was kind of wondering, does this success in this skills challenge with the bigs and really from Jokic to Sabonis to other guys who, you know, in games are really handling the ball a lot and the offense is moving around them and they're passing, does this reflect a development within the NBA, how point guards are almost becoming score first, less passing, and then a lot of these bigs and forwards are becoming more focused on orchestrating the offense in a passing manner. Has the NBA, you know, progressed? Has it become more of a small ball? Has it also progressed to bigger guys handling the ball? It's kind of weird how there's been this weird small ball has become big handling the ball at the same time. So in a way, it's not entirely all small ball. Uh, I just wanted to quickly point out, I, n- I noticed this uh, when I was looking through. So the, the guys who lead the league in assists right now, LeBron James, Trey Young in this order. One is LeBron, two is Trey Young, three is Luka Doncic, four is Ricky Rubio and five is Ben Simmons. Uh, their heights in, in that order are 6'9", 6'1", 6'7", 6'3", 6'10". So three of them are 6'7", or taller, and their average height is 6'6". And then if we just rewind to one year ago, at the end of the year, Russell Westbrook, Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul, Trey Young, and Drew Holiday were the top five in assists, and they were all 6'3", or under, and their average height was like 6'1". So it's kind of interesting how all of a sudden a lot of the guys at the top of the assist leaderboard are some bigger forwards that are really orchestrating things now. Those three are very unique talents with Ben Simmons, Luka, and LeBron, but I just thought it was interesting, and maybe it does reflect something. What do you think, Timor? Yeah, maybe it does. You know what I really found interesting when I was digging through some stats for this? Ben, is, when I when I calculated these, was shooting 9.1% from three-point and was attempting 0.3 three-point attempts per 100 possessions. And That's somehow funny. during the, the showdown, he was able to just knock them down. So that, that's probably <laughs> that's more, a good impressive, point. more impressive to me. But, yeah, I, it is, it's very – those are some great nuggets you pulled out. It is interesting. The big guys are being asked to toss the ball around more. So maybe we'll be seeing this more often. Yeah, maybe the, the point guards will become centers and the centers will become point guards. Ooh. I'd like to see that. Maybe they just won't even be positions anymore. <laughs> yeah. They'll just be like amoeba. Yeah. All right. <laughs> amoeba, yeah. <laughs> Three-point competition. This was very fun. They added a 30-foot shot, the bound do shot. That was a very interesting addition. I-, I wonder if that threw people out of their rhythm. Not too many were able to actually hit that shot. This was a close match, and Buddy Heald was able to win on his last shot, and he didn't even need to hit any of those Mountain Dew balls. Did you enjoy the addition of that 30-foot shot, or did you think it kind of threw guys off in the rhythm? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if the distance actually threw anyone off, especially with you know the, the distance that guys are really shooting it in games now. But I will tell you, the color of that ball might have thrown some guys off. My gosh, I felt like I was having a brain aneurysm when I looked at it. It was just like I couldn't even see it. Sure. You know what it reminded me of? Do you remember uh, when Dwight Howard was doing the Superman dunks? Oh, yeah. Nate uh, Robinson came out with, like, that kryptonite outfit. It kind of looked yeah. like that. That's exactly what it looked like. I think it was my kryptonite. I just couldn't see the screen. True. <laughs> yeah, that, that, the, the color of the ball was a bit aggressive, but that, that was the fun of contest. 
Yeah, I will right. say that it was imp- it was impressive from Devin Booker to Buddy Heald to Bertans. Like they put up what was it, twenty six, twenty seven, twenty seven in the first round. Like there were guys that had twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, and they were just eliminated. It was pretty unbelievable. I thought the shooting on display really reflects how how highly skilled our shooters are in the league today. As Booger McFarland says, how skilled the guys in our league are. <laughs> Shout us out. Now, Liam, I have one more question for you before I move on. Uh, do you think Duncan Robinson will be getting a lot of flack from the Miami Heat guys as the only non-Heat <laughs> player to come away from All-Star game with a win? That's a great point. He might. I know he was getting a little bit of flack from Dwayne Wade. Then again, Dwayne Wade didn't rig it for him, so maybe Dwayne should get the, the flack. I don't know. All right, yeah, that's the perfect segue to the dunk contest. Now, there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff here, but as you said, Dwayne Wade absolutely rigged this for Derrick Jones Jr. But to be fair, he has some incredible dunks. Aaron Gordon. It feels like he kind of got ripped off. He was able to jump over Taco, even though he kind of uh, split against him with his behind. But he was still able to get over Taco, which is very impressive. So here are a couple of funny things that I thought. So our boy Pat, he did the white man can't jump, which was great. And D. Wade, this is important, was the only judge to give him one less point than all the other ones. He did it in advance because he was behind Derrick Jones Jr. by one point, the one point that D-Wade did not give him. So D-Wade is just a massive culprit at the end of this. When Pat was picking Giannis as his person to dunk over, what did you think of that choice? Were you afraid for Pat? Because I bet the GM of the Bucks and all Bucks fans held their breath when that was happening. I was really nervous for Pat. I mean, what... I don't even really want to think about the catastrophe if, if something bad would have happened there. But also, what would the Bucks might have just like cut him? I mean, that's a generational player that he's like jumping over. So I don't know. I was really nervous, but then again, I also wasn't too nervous because it's Pat. He has a 44-inch vertical. I think he was a little bit of an underdog in this, so I could feel he was really, really wanting to. He, he was really motivated. Felt he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. So I was nervous, but I was also kind of confident for him at the same time. True. And this is a great nugget that you pulled, but Aaron Gordon. So here are people who had 50-point dunk totals. So Michael Jordan, you've heard of him before. He has had he had seven 50-point dunks. Zach Levine, seven 50-point dunks. And Aaron Gordon has eight, which is more than those two. And Aaron Gordon is the only one of those – Three people who has not won a dunk contest, so that's that does not seem right. Hey, that's the most fifties of all time as well. Yeah, no wins. Yeah, that guy was made to dunk. <laughs> and then, obviously, these events are for the kids. But if you could change the dunk contest judging besides not ever having D-Wade judge it again. (laughs) What modifications would you make? I think my first one would be if a player is in any way involved with any of the other players involved in the dunk contest, they are disqualified and they can't be a judge. That would be like rule number one (laughs) for me. But what would your modification be for the dunk contest? 
Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. That should be like rule 1A. The judges should not be compromised in any way or maybe in any slight way. And he was very compromised. But I actually had a, an idea for a whole new system. So first of all, as you mentioned, this is kind of for the kids or for the fans. So what if they really centered around that? And I think, honestly, the fans would be pretty fair judges. They want to reward people who are really showing supreme athleticism. I mean, they're all showing supreme athleticism, but the guys who are really going above and beyond, they want to reward those people. The fans really want, you know, the winner to be the the deserved winner. So what if, after each dunk, there was maybe a a two-minute window where someone, you know, kind of created like a portal online and it would – a fan vote, kind of like, you know, the the MVP of the Super Bowl. What if it was a fan vote and the fans did out of 10 or out of 100? But I think if you had like a 120-second to three-minute window, it would allow hundreds of thousands of fans to contribute. So I think the average would be a lot closer to what it should be rather than five different people voting on a number and at least a couple of them are compromised in some way because they all there's been so many players that have been involved like ex-players in that judging process or they're like people that don't I feel like know basketball that well not that fans would know it any better um, I just think that if you involve the fan it's a better score it'll be more just and it involves the fan they feel power they are more likely to watch and, and engage in it and it kind of adds an almost interactive element so I think that that would be kind of an interesting approach to that dunk contest scoring. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and since I'm learning app development, maybe I could develop that. But uh, <laughs> do you, I think do you, you should. So are you saying that Common and Black Panther are not good judges because they, I would bet $8 billion, those guys have never dunked a basketball without the use of trampoline. <laughs> Or their superpowers from the movie. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I'd say that their assessment of a dunk wouldn't be any more, any more merited, you know, from the average Joe Schmo. Okay. Unless I'm missing something in their basketball history. True. All right. And then finally, the all-star game. This was fun. The first couple quarters were like normal all-star games with no defense. But the fourth quarter was intense. The guys were into it. They were really taking this seriously with the, the point cap. So, Liam, how did you like the set point total that the players needed to get to, and how did you think it affected the game? So for this setting, I really liked it. It added a really competitive element. The guys were battling to to win because they were both kind of in shouting distance now. This might have been a very different story if it was a complete blowout entering the fourth quarter. But LeBron's team closed the gap enough where it wasn't a blowout. Target score was in a reasonable reach. They were both going for it because it was a close enough game. Additionally, there was the whole element with the money going to the two different charities or potentially going to the two different charities. With that representatives from those charities being right there courtside, there was an extra added motivation for those guys to go win. So they were, you know, Kyle Lowry drew two charges. He tried to draw another two. Guys were arguing with the refs. Guys were diving on the floor, you know, for loose balls. The guys were just defending. Uh, that used something you didn't see in all-star games. Now, 
if that is something that's going on for the whole game, then I'd be a little bit concerned about, you know, some wear and tear and injuries. But because it's just one quarter, I think it's almost a perfect setup. You know, you kind of have – it's almost like a three three quarters of just threes and dunks and alley-oops, and the guys kind of can warm up. And then they have a quarter to really compete in battle. So I liked it a lot. I, I'd be shocked if they did, they went away from this because I think it added such a nice competitive element. Yeah, what did what were you your thoughts on everything? Yeah, it was great. My only concerns was Kemba did not look good in the fourth quarter from the highlights that I saw. So could that be potentially bad for the Celtics? I mean, I can't take it too seriously from the All Star game, but it was crunch time and it was very interesting. I mean. There were no TV timeouts, so did you feel like the guys were kind of gassed without the use of the TV timeouts, like the coaches put them in too soon because there was no breaks for them to sit down? Yeah, so the guys definitely seemed a little bit tired. I think that the coaches put them in too soon, but then again, if I were coaching, I probably would have had a similar thought. They just were def- you know, defending so hard on both sides that there were at like a standstill offensively. No one could score. It was just free throws and the occasional lucky shot. And no one was getting a clean look. They did put them in too soon as far as they played probably like LeBron, Kawhi, AD. We're on the court for, I think, over half hour at the end straight. If they had to do it again, knowing, you know, how long that, that would take, I think they would have played those guys a lot less and subbed more. I think that would also have added a little bit more of offensive flair to it. I think it got a little bit too chippy to the point where no one could score. So I think if they had staggered a little bit with the subs, that would have helped because there was plenty of talented guys on the bench that would have added a lot of offensive flair. I'm kind of nitpicking right now. It was really cool and refreshing to have that element in the All-Star game. All right, so that is everything I have written down for the All-Star game. Now, Liam... Because you're a Cavs fan, I do I don't want to bring this up. But we have to bring it to the people because I'm sure they're wondering how you feel about it. John Beeline is no longer going to be the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Harlow analogy you used for this move that the Cavs went through is off to a rocky start with Drummond. So how are you feeling with D-line being moved out? And Cleveland's been going through a lot of head coaches. Yeah, it's not easy with what's going on right now. Colin Sexton, this is going to be his fourth head coach. He's not even finished his second full season. Young Colin is. He works hard. He wants to be good. But he's someone that really could use structure. And I don't think that four coaches in 18 months of structure, do you? No, I wouldn't. Doesn't so. sound like structure. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he would really benefit. Now, I was looking um, on NBA.com. They have some kind of cool advanced stats tools where you can sort and everything. I did not know that until today, so I was kind of messing around with that. They have this. I don't. I can't even find it right now as I'm going back in because I got really into the bowels of it earlier. But basically, I was sorting like the plus minus of different combinations of lineups. The Cavs starting lineup, which they have not really gone away from, of Jetty, Osman, Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, uh, Tristan Thompson, and Kevin Love, so their starters before the Drummond deal, basically, have by far the worst plus-minus in the NBA of any lineup, like by far. Maybe they were, there was a little bit of thought, like, we need to mix something up. This year's a wash. 
I hope that Drummond, you know, can at least bond and connect with Sexton and Garland, the young guards, because Drummond's only 26, and if he can find a home in Cleveland, they can build a little bit of cohesion and chemistry. Maybe they get a decent player in the draft next year. I think Kevin Porter Jr. is going to be decent. Like, maybe something will happen, but right now, this car lease is going to be a bumpy road for now. That's, that's kind of the yeah. extent of my thoughts. All right. I won't, uh, I won't uh, torture you too much longer with that stuff. So we are going to go over a bunch of different teams now that we are in the final stretch of the NBA season. These are teams that we believe will be able to make a big impact in the playoffs, either win a game, win a series, or make the finals. But before I get into that, I just want to explain a few stats, if I mention them, for the people who don't know NBA stats as well as I did before this week. Offensive rating is for players, it is points produced per 100 possessions. So that's for players, so for Giannis or Embiid. And then for teams, it is points scored per 100 possessions. PER is the player efficiency rating. It's a measure of permanent production standardized, such as the league average is 15. So if your PER is significantly above 15, you are one of the most impactful guys. And then win shares, it's an estimate of the number of wins contributed by a player. So let us start. The Milwaukee Bucks, currently the one seed, they are leading the league in points per game at 119.6. They are also leading the league in defensive rating with a defensive rating of 102, and they're first in the league in net rating at 11.5. For Giannis, he is the leading MVP candidate. I went through his stats, and the only one that is questionable is that he is going 61.4% from the free-throw line. That is not very good. For Middleton, who is one of their impactful wings, he is shooting 50.1% from the field, which is very good, 43.8% from three, which is ridiculous, and 90.2% from the free throw line, which is very good. And then for Bledsoe, remember last year, Bledsoe wasn't very good for the Bucks in the playoffs. Last year, he was shooting 23.6% from three, and he contributed 0.7 win shares, which is not very good. And for the regular season, in contrast, this year, He's shooting 33.9% from three and has contributed 4.6 win shares. They're going to need blood, so to not have as bad of a run as he did last year. So, Liam, the first question I have for you is, do you think that the Bucks will be able to get to 70 wins? They are 47-8 and eight right now, I believe, and will need 23 wins to get to 70. Do you think they will get there, and should they try to? So I think that they are capable of doing it. Like you mentioned with Bledsoe Middleton, I think it's kind of – it must feel good for them being people that were doubted last year. People, you know, criticized Middleton getting that con- the big contract. Well, paying him has clearly paid off as well as Bledsoe. So I think they could. I think they have the right people that are motivated that would want to get it done. But I, I don't think it, it makes sense to really put all your eggs in that basket. I think if it happens, it happens. You know, once it gets down to the last couple of weeks, Giannis and Bledsoe and Middleton and, and company, their minutes should be diminished a little bit, enough so that they're still in a rhythm as they head into the playoffs. They should be resting their legs a little bit more. There's no need to pick up too many miles heading into a long playoff run. So it just doesn't make sense to me to prioritize that. It's not like an NBA record 70 wins, fortunately, since the Warriors just won 73 a couple of years back. 
So I don't think it makes sense. I think they're capable of it because I don't think it makes sense to prioritize. I don't think they will, and I don't think it will happen. I think they'll be in the high 60s. Do you think that Giannis has locked up the MVP? You know, I mentioned he's the leading candidate, but I think it's mainly between him and LeBron. Yeah, that's a good question. He's definitely the leading candidate, but I still think that there's a sliver of a path for LeBron, especially if the Lakers go on an incredible tear and LeBron keeps leading the league and assists, doing so in impressive fashion and really just controlling the tempo of every single game. I think there's a path. Now, I think it's unlikely, really unlikely. Giannis hasn't had it locked up, but, you know, in a healthy lead. What do you think? The only way Giannis, I think, will lose it is if the media starts being like, man, I mean, he won it last year. There's no way we can give it to him again. He's too nice. People like him too much. That would be the only way, is if people just started talking themselves out of it just for the argument's sake. Last question. So if you're the Bucks, who would you most want to be the four seed in the East, and how do you see them finding success in the playoffs? Well, if they could choose anyone, I think they'd probably want the Cleveland Cavs to be the four seed because they just stomp on their necks. But um, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'd say realistic four seed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they could choose amongst the teams, you know, that are in the mix, from the Celtics to the Raptors to the Sixers to the Pacers to the Heat, you know, those those five. Ooh, that's tough. I mean, I I think that the team with the lowest ceiling, unfortunately, like they're they're a great team as far as what they've gotten production-wise out of Sabonis and Brogdon and, you know, at points in the last couple years, Old Depot. But I just think the Pacers have the lowest ceiling, the least amount of firepower. The Sixers, obviously, are struggling right now. But at the end of the day, they have two of the best talents in the league. And then they still have Tobias Harris and other players that are very capable of scoring 30 in a playoff game. So I think they'd probably feel most confident in a matchup with the Pacers. What do you think? I think they're just hoping they don't have to face Philly with their size against Giannis. Completely agree. How do you see the Bucks finding success? you see mainly through their defense and Giannis just kind of taking over and taking the next step up? Yeah. So one thing that will be interesting for them to figure out as they get into the playoffs is what is their most effective lineup. Uh, their starting lineup has – Actually, not what we'll figure out later in this, who actually has the highest plus-minus of any lineup. I mentioned it below a team. The Bucks stars have the second highest plus-minus. Do they dip into their bench? Because they do. They are deep. They're not getting this crazy net rating just from being top-heavy with the starters. They are incredibly deep. Their bench actually has the best net rating in the league of any bench as well. So it's top to bottom. Their whole team has been incredible. Actually, this is kind of interesting. I found this on NBA.com. Six of the top eight plus minuses in the NBA are Bucks players. So they're starters and the first guy off the bench. The only other two non-Bucks players in the NBA and plus minus outside of them are actually LeBron and Tatum. Celtic and a Laker, which is kind of funny. It really shows how effective Tatum's been. It's important to really underline how dominant their defense has been. Another thing I found out on NBA.com, they lead the league in contesting shots. They contest a stunning 76% of their opponent's shots. Meanwhile, the other 29 teams in the league contest all between 54 and 67% of their opponent's shots. So everyone else in the league is between 54 and 67, and they're 9% above anyone else at 76, which really shows how much ground they're covering defensively, how many guys are really 
versatile enough to cover different positions and how many guys are playing key minutes and big minutes down the stretch. They're a deep team that does it on both sides of the ball, as we say in football, as we, I'm not a football guy, but as they say in football. One last thing I forgot to mention with Giannis, he has a 32.2 PER, so that is more than double what the average is. He's incredible. All right, let's move on to the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors have a 105.4 defensive rating, which is second in the league. They are 6.3 net rating, which is fourth for Pascal Siakam, who is arguably their best player. He has a PER of 18.9, which is a little bit above average, and a 28.9% usage rate. For Kyle Lowry, he is shooting 42% from the field, 35.7% from three, and is taking 10.53 point attempts per 100 possessions. And Fred Van Fleet, I wrote him down as an important player for them, as he was last year in the playoffs. He has a 22.2% usage rate, which is higher than I would think. For the Raptors, they have been impressive all year. Do you think that Nick Nurse will be winning Coach of the Year? If I had a vote, it would definitely go to him. There's a lot of people in the media that, unfortunately, after the fact, are saying, oh, yeah, I knew the Raptors were going to be this good. But the reality is a lot of people after last year, after Kawhi left, were saying something along the lines of, you know what, Toronto, just enjoy that championship trophy because not much is going to happen for a while. There's a lot of writing them off, to be honest. They haven't missed a step. Siakam's jumped up a level to fill kind of a similar Leonard role. And then guys like Ananobi, Terrence Davis have jumped up a level to almost fill what Siakam was doing last year. It's pretty impressive how Nick Nurse has orchestrated all that. He'd get my vote. So for the playoffs, last year they had Kawhi. Against the Sixers, specifically towards the end of that series, Kawhi just had to take over, and especially in that game with the iconic shot where the ball just kind of rolled around, rolled around, and then it went in. For the Raptors, who will be able to pick up that role as the guy when it comes down to the wire in game six or seven in an elimination game to take the biggest shots and have the biggest impact? It's a big question. It's an important one. It's what Giannis is going to have to do for the Bucks to take that next step. But I do think Siakam is capable of it. Thinking back to the finals last year, there really were moments where he was, I thought, the biggest impact player in the game at different points, almost more so than Kawhi. He really set the tone early in a bunch of those finals games. He's versatile enough and long enough and athletic enough and, you know, skilled enough to score in a variety of ways. It's important to have that wide-ranging skill set when it gets down to crunch time, when in the half court you need to be able to score in all areas. And he can do that. So I think it has to be him, and I think he's capable of it. Now, also, one other thing that will help that really was re- kind of invigorated in the all-star fourth quarter. Kyle Lowry is not going to shy away from anything ever. He's going to have a big impact on any tight game. He's going to make a lot of winning plays, and I think that's important to note as well. That's all I have for the Raptors. Anything else you want to mention that you dug into before I move on to my Boston Celtics? Um, let's move on to Boston. Let's ship up to Boston. The Celtics. All right, so the Celtics are fifth in the league in offensive rating, third in defensive, and third in overall net rating. Kemba Walker, who has been injured lately, I think he had a procedure on his knee. He's been shooting 42.9% from the field, 86.6% from the free throw line, which is pretty good, and 21 PER. For Jason Tatum, who has been 
fire hot these last few games, just taking over. He had 41 today against the Lakers. He is shooting 38.2% from the three-point land, 9.73 point attempts per 100 possessions, and a 19.5 PER, but I bet those numbers are higher since when I wrote these down. I had a hard time choosing who to look up between Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward. I chose with I went with Jalen. I just feel like he's had more impact. He's been shooting almost 50% from field goals, 24.6% usage rate. Liam, in the playoffs, the Celtics are going to need Jason Tatum to take that next up and be the best guy. Do you think that Tatum will be able to raise his ceiling and be that guy for the Celtics, like Siakam will be for the Raptors and Giannis for the Bucks? I absolutely think he's capable of it from what we've seen these last few weeks. Now, I don't know if we're going to get in full force quite yet. I feel like with guys earlier in their career, it kind of comes in flashes. As you grow and develop and become a more well-groomed professional, it's something that becomes more sustained. Now, it's just going to be learned and developed over time to make it sustainable as far as him taking over a game. It's not just going to be something he all of a sudden is able to do every playoff game. So I think he's going to be able to do it in spots this playoff run, and I, I want to see him at least a couple times in each series they're in be the guy that takes over the game. I think he needs to assert himself because what we've heard from mutterings in the locker room from Jalen Brown to Marcus Smart to whoever is that Jason Tatum has been the guy in practice and in moments in games. But can he assert himself from what it seems like his teammates are ready for him to do that consistently? And one funny stat from the Bill Simmons podcast, Jason Tatum has 3,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 1,000 assists before the age of 22. Here are the players to have met this. LeBron, Kobe, and one other person that Bill did not mention, and I could not find that other person, so sorry to oh, is, it, is it Brian Scalabrini? Oh, yes, Scal. <laughs> So for the Celtics, the narrative is they're small. They don't have a lot of big guys on their roster. How do you think the Celtics can find success against the Bucks and the 76ers? That's a good question. One, it's going to be defensively on the playoffs. They actually have the third best net rating defensively. One thing that I found online, again, at NBA.com today. So obviously they really like to utilize their wings, both offensively and defensively, their wings being Brown, Tatum, and Hayward. They're all, you know, 6'8", around their athletic, can move their feet as well as any guard. For them, between those three, and Marcus Smart is also a big defensive stopper, they actually, as a team, lead the league in defensive deflections. They get 17.3 a game, which I thought was interesting because it really shows how effective that length is. They're going to need that length against the Sixers and the Bucks, whether it's Giannis or Simmons or whoever. They're going to need those guys to really step up and they do have the players to do so. So that's one way they're going to find you know, success defensively is continuing to get deflections and disrupt their offenses. And then for them offensively, I thought this is interesting because there's a little bit of a misconception, I think, that they lack a big. I think you know, Tice has done really well to fill in as kind of their, at least for now, starting center. And in general, they've made do with a little bit of big by committee, kind of like in the NFL, they'll go running back by committee. They kind of do it in more of a committee style with guys filling in for different spots. They're actually third in the league in screen assist. So a screen assist is where it's such a good pick that 
basically sets up the bucket. So they're actually third in the league in that, which shows that despite the narrative not having a go-to center, they're still getting the job done as far as creating space and carving out space, you know, for their ball handlers to go score. I think that'll be important as they will potentially play the Bucks and the Sixers, teams with a lot of size and length that they're going to need to create space against. I'm going to be rooting for them. They're going to be very biased if they make a deep run. Going to, got to admit to it right now. All right, so let's move on to the Miami Heat, who have been the surprise story, I guess I would say, of the season so far, at least on the East. So for Miami, they are 10th overall in net rating, 9th in offensive rating, and 13th in defensive. Now, here's some interesting numbers. So for Jimmy Butler, he is shooting 24.8% from three. That is not very good. And he's taking 3.5 three-point attempts per 100 possessions. So that's not a lot of threes, thankfully, because he's not been shooting at a great percentage. For Bam Adebayo, he has a 20.7 PER, which is slightly above average. He's shooting 57.9% from the field. And I mentioned his three-point stats earlier, so I won't mention them again. He's getting 10.4 total rebounds a game, so that is both offensively and defensively. And then Duncan Robinson, I wrote down, for uh, the Agassiz link, he's shooting 43.8% from three, and he's taking 13.6 three-point attempts per 100 possessions. So he's shooting a lot of threes, and most of them are going in. And he's, he has a PER of 12.6, which is slightly below average. But uh, if he can shoot threes, watch out. And also, one thing to note is that Tyler Hero is potentially out for the season. His injury is still up in the air. We're not completely confirmed on whether he's out or not, but that'll be something to look ahead to. Liam, a lot of the playoffs that I've mentioned has been about who can really take over, who's the guy. Is Jimmy Butler the person in the East who you think will be is the most qualified to be the guy? Do you think he is the most trustworthy in a spot for the Heat to kind of hand the keys over? That's a great question, and it's definitely something that's going to need to be present in a team that's going to go to the NBA Finals as far as do they have someone that's going to just take over in crunch time? If it's going to be the Celtics, it's got to be Tatum. Gotta. <laughs> if it's going to be the Raptors, it's got to be Siakam. If it's going to be you know, the Bucks, we know who it's got to be. Are you I sure Drake definitely... isn't the most important player for the Raptors? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. He, he's got a lot of big rings and a lot of big things. So may, maybe might be him. But for the Heat, it's definitely Jimmy Butler. I'm not sure if trustworthy is the right word to describe him. I think it's just like he has this innate like dog mentality where he just will he's not afraid of any moment or anyone or anything. So he's not going to hesitate or blink in any, you know, crunch time minute. So I I think he's the guy. As far as the East goes, I don't know, you know, where he stacks up against Giannis. As as far as, you know, not being afraid of the moment and, you know, being a little bit more experienced, he has it over Giannis. But Jimmy's also not seven foot and, uh, you know, takes strides the length of the court. So I, I don't know how they'll match up there. But I think Jimmy Butler's the guy for Miami, and I think he'll, you know, really help them be a tough out in the playoffs. All right. And so do you think that the Sixers will be able to stay ahead of the Sixers coming down the stretch here? Because I feel like for the Heat, seeding is very important. I mean, I guess that's kind of a silly statement. Seeding is always important. But 
I think not letting the Sixers have home court, as we'll get to later, is vital for any of these playoff teams. Great point. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I really do think they will be, will be able to. They seem to be in quite the rhythm, offensively and defensively. The Heat, I just feel like they have so much chemistry. They don't really have too many proven guys, but they're really getting it done, whether it's Kendrick Nunn or Duncan Robinson or whoever else off the bench. They actually are tied to the league lead in true shooting percentage with those Milwaukee Bucks at 58.6%. Their offensive chemistry and floor spacing is awesome. You know, Eric Spolstra is another guy that really should be in consideration for Coach of the Year. They are just really a, a very unselfish group, headlined by Jimmy, honestly which is kind of funny, and I wanted to point it out, because Jimmy gets this stick that he's, you know, very selfish, and he's hard to work with, and he's not a team player. But in reality is, the three places where he kind of threw a fit, looking back on those places now, they're a mess, all three. Chicago has been one of the worst teams in the league since he left. Minnesota has hard, has struggled to win a game since 2019. And right now, Philly is not in a good spot. So is, has it been Jimmy's fault? What do you think, Timor? Were those places, can, can Jimmy be removed, removed of, remiss of responsibility for what happened there? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that would be a hot take. I'm like, listen, if you're going to, like, go into practice and just get mad at everyone, like, even if, no matter how bad of a situation it is, like, come on, dude. You know? Like, you don't walk into a class you hate. Like, you don't go into 8 a.m. chemistry class and just start being mean to everyone because you don't want to get up, right? So, yeah, it's not like you have to take the class and there was no other option. So it's kind of the school's fault that you're in this situation. But, you know, you don't have to be a jerk to everyone, you know. That's true. I just thought it was uh, worth asking. Yeah. No, that's a um, great – I should have just committed to the hot take that it wasn't his fault. I think that would have been more fun. No, but it is interesting how he's – headlining a very unselfish and what seems to be healthy, you know, team culture and group because he was not headlining that uh, for the last few years. Yeah, that is very interesting. All right. So for the Indiana Pacers, moving on to the next team, they have been also pretty surprising, especially without their best player, Victor Oladipo. They are 15th in offensive rating, 11th in defense, and 13th in net rating. Malcolm Brogdon, who has been their best player while Oladipo has been hurt, he's been shooting 90.6% from the free throw line. That is very, very good. He has a 25.6% usage rate, so that's up there, and an estimated three win shares. For Sabonis, the all-star, he's been shooting 54.1% from the field goals. For field goals, he's, he's shot... Uh, 22.4% from the three-point line and is taking 1.6 three-point attempts per 100 possessions. And in Old Depot, I wrote down some stats, but to be honest, they're not very great because the sample size is small. Uh, I think the one that is most telling is that he's taking 11.4 three-point attempts per 100 possessions, but all the other ones are down because he hasn't really been able to be in the starting lineups. So I don't have as many questions for this team, but do you think the Pacers will be able to make some noise and upset the team in the playoffs? I think they're capable of it. Now, to be honest, as currently constructed, I don't see it happening. They 
are a team that's not going to beat themselves. Like you mentioned with Brogdon, he's a great floor general. Uh, he'll battle. He works. Uh, he's, he's good defensively. Like you said, 90% from the free throw line. They're not going to beat themselves. They actually lead the league just a turnover ratio, uh, which shows how they're very, you know, fundamentally sound. They don't, they're not going to just turn the ball over. Now, what I thought was interesting is that despite that, they're actually 15th in offensive rating. So they have a lot to work through there as far as, you know, getting to the hoop and scoring efficiently, too. So I did a little bit more digging on, again, NBA.com. Check out their stats tool. But 13%, actually 13.9% of their points come from mid-range. That's actually the second highest in the league. All of the other teams in the top five of that, as far as highest percentages of their points coming from mid-range, they're all four teams that likely will not be in the playoffs as we see it now. So essentially, teams that you know are really relying on long twos are just not seeing success in today's NBA. So it's something that I'm wondering why they don't you know focus on getting you know more layups and dunks, you know, the high percentage or higher point value opportunities. By the way, the other teams in that top five, so the Spurs lead the league in long twos, headlined by Aldridge, then it's the Blazers, the Warriors, and the Knicks, and the Pacers are the the other team in that mix. So uh, that's just kind of interesting. I wonder how they alter their offense, especially as they reintegrate reintegrate Victor Oladipo. That's very interesting. I didn't know I I'm surprised they shoot that many mid range jumpers. Alright, so let's move on to the team that has been confusing to everyone. The Philadelphia seventy sixers. By far, I think they probably have one of the worst offensive ratings in terms of playoff teams. I think that's pretty easy to say. They are twentieth in offensive rating and fifth in defensive and overall they have the twelfth in net rating. Joel Embiid, he's shooting 33.6% from three, 6.2 attempts per 100 possessions. But if you're the opposing team, you want him shooting a three, not in the paint. And he has a 24.9 PER. Ben Simmons, who got hurt recently, he has a back injury. We'll see how severe that is. He's shooting 58.4% from the field goals for uh, field goals, 62.8% from the free throw line, which is not very good. And the final player I chose was Al Horford because he has been much maligned this year. His stats look uh, pretty decent, but when he's out on the floor, it just hasn't looked great. Uh, 44% from the field goal field goal percentage, 73.2% from the free throw line, 15.2 PER, which is league average. Giannis has drafted Embiid twice in the past two years, meaning he ripped it for the All-Star game, so he really respects Embiid. So, Liam, Joel Embiid is a guy who on some nights looks like the best player in the league, and on other nights is just kind of taking the day off. How can Embiid affect this Sixers team and help them get on a deep playoff run? Well, you know, there's a lot that's got to happen outside of Embiid, I'd say. They really need Tobias Harris to step up and be a shot maker as he's their, you know, best natural shot maker, and he's going to be what opens up space for Embiid. But focusing more on on Embiid and what your question asked, he's just got to be the focal point. He has to be the initiator. He cannot shy away from anything. He has to go at people. He has to bully people in the post, in the paint, uh, like Shaq and Charles are really begging him to do night in and night out. You see it some nights. He, sometimes he just kind of disappears. Um, he has to assert himself. He has to be the alpha dog like he is sometimes. He has to be consistently. True. And 
The Sixers have had crazy home road splits. On the, at home, the Sixers have just been crushing teams, and I don't know, they just cannot seem to win a game on the road. So I think it is vital for this team to be able to get home court with the way they've been playing. You just If they're going to be a low seed, they're going to have to win games on the road, and they just haven't scooped that at all this regular season. A lot of media members said that they could win the finals this year. What could they do to reach those expectations that were put on them? And so one thing I just mentioned, Tobias Harris has to be much better. They are going to have no space to operate with in the half court if he is not making shots. Teams will just pack it in. So he has to be, you know, a shot maker and he has to be assertive. Also, this kind of directly relates to that, but right now they're 20th in the league in true search, true shooting percentage. They're in the bottom 10 as there's 30 teams. So the other nine teams are all non-playoff teams. So they're all, the only team that's currently in a playoff spot that is in the bottom 10 and true shooting percentage. So what's going to help that is Tobias Harris asserting himself and making shots to open up space for Embiid and Simmons who need space to work with in the paint because he can't shoot. True. Uh, they are they are they're a team that has a lot of talent and they've been confusing all year. All right, so that is our preview of the East. Any other notes before we get into our segments and wrap up the show here, Liam? Yeah, so obviously we only talked about some of the teams in the East, but we were just trying to focus on the contenders and really dive deep on those teams that are likely to be, you know, no offense to uh, the Nets and the Magic, and maybe the Wizards will get in on the act. Actually, I saw one kind of funny thing today. I did not write this down, but on NBA.com they compile a lot of stats, and they there was an option to, you know, look at charges. So the Washington Wizards successfully take 1.39 charges per game. No one else is over one. Everyone else is under well under one. They take by far the most charges a game in the league. But it's also funny because they give up the most points. So just kind of random stat of the day. But, yeah, we wanted to focus on these five here today to just dive deep on the teams that will be playing late in the year. But that's all I got for this section, Team One. All right, here we go. Time for Spice Fight. Liam, you picked the the topic, and today is about the XFL. All right, so round one is our bell pepper round. So this is a very mild opinion. It's not. It's something that a lot of people would agree with. What do you got? So mine might not be quite as mild, but for me, I think it would be really cool and really entertaining if the team that ends up winning this XFL would go on to play some sort of group of players that is also looking to play in the NFL. So my initial thought was, you know, the XFL champion goes and plays the seniors that would be in the senior bowl. Um, So maybe that just becomes the senior bowl. Uh, I don't know, but I think that would be really cool and kind of give a good measuring stick for, one, I think how good these these XFL players actually are. I mean, they all were, at one point in time, elite Division One college players, for the most part at least. So I, I think that would – I mean, I think these XFL teams would put a good – handle on the, the senior bowl teams but you know I could be wrong and I think there's only one way to find out well that's I like that idea a lot so if we were going to go with the uh, senior bowl route which I think that's a really good idea who would be the coach just the uh, the coach of the team who won the national championship or you could go the the team that owns the number one pick in the draft so they can start kind of interacting with someone they might draft I don't know get some get some tampering allegations involved yeah I like yeah, that exactly. <laughs> um all right, so my my bell pepper is that another football league is good for the NFL. 
competition is good. It makes you have to kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, what could we potentially be doing better? What can we do that, you know, will improve our product? Now, the NFL is in a spot where they are by far the most popular league, especially to watch on TV. So if the XFL can give them a bit of a run for their money, they'll having another football league is good for innovation to the NFL. I agree. Um, all right, next round. This is the habanero round. So this is a lot got quite a bit more spice. Some people will probably agree with you, but others might disagree. What is your habanero pepper for this round? Yeah, so I'm not sure if you have seen some of the viral videos of what's been going on in the stands of these XFL games, but there, it's a lot of binge drinking, I guess you could say. I guess that's what the kids are calling it these days. But I remember seeing a video of, like, some in one section of one of the stadiums, they started stacking beer cups, and it went, like, across an entire section. And it just seems like every time they pan to the, into the fans, it's just a bunch of really drunk people. So my take is that the percentage of heavily intoxicated people in the stands to the total, you know, percentage, I guess the portion, proportion of heavily intoxicated people, it is a higher proportion in XFL stadiums than people in Chicago on St. Paddy's Day, which is significant because people get so drunk that they turn the river green. So, yeah, that's not actually what happens, but the river does turn green. Just from all the the vomit from... (laughs) from (laughs) Let me me ask you a uh, follow-up question there, Liam. Do you, do you think that the Bills Mafia will have to step their, their game up after watching these XFL fans kind of just do their thing? I think they do in terms of what they're doing inside the stadium. Now, the issue is that I think that the, X, the security at XFL games is a little bit more gives them a little more leeway uh, than in an NFL stadium. True. I, I, I think at the uh, Bills games, they should, just, they should just let them do whatever they want. Um, yeah. All right, so my habanero. So the interviews that they can do directly after a player messes up, that's just cruel and unusual punishment, man. I, I haven't watched much XFL, but I was watching a few drives, and a guy would throw an interception or have a fumble, and he's obviously not happy with himself. And the interview doesn't really even go anywhere special. It's like, hey, man, you know, what went wrong with that play? It's like, man, you know, I just got to do better. I got to secure the ball better. I made a mistake, but I'm going to come back and get it next time. You know, I, there's no need to do that, man. They, they messed up. They know they messed up. You don't need to ask them to tell us some generic answer about have them a little more upset about what happened, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. It's also directly led to multiple incidents of guys just directly swearing on live TV because they come off the field mad and there's someone interviewing them and they just say a bunch of yeah, you know the the rest. Yeah. <laughs> they just have to a giant bleep. What do you say? <laughs> but they haven't edited in time on a couple of occasions. And, yeah. Oh, wow. Maybe that's on purpose. <laughs> All right, Liam, our final round. Trinidad Scorpion. This is a opinion that you have about the XFL that is just so scorching hot that very few people would agree with you. All right. So I'm not sure if, you know, how many people have had a chance to watch him, but P.J. Walker, he's the quarterback for the Houston Roughnecks. He has been unbelievable. He's had at least three touchdown passes in every game. He is mobile. He's athletic. He can throw the ball downfield. 
he is just taking over every game. Their team looks like the team to beat. He is a runaway MVP right now for me. And he looks impressive enough to me. He looks like an NFL quarterback running around out there. I think he is good enough to play in the NFL. I actually think, I mean, this is the Trinidad Scorpion. I think he's not only good enough to play in the NFL, but to actually carve out a career as a starting quarterback in the NFL. You heard it here first. P.J. Walker will be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Wow. That's, that's intense. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to get to get started, is do your name out there in the XFL and let people see what you can do. Wow. That's a... Ooh, that has some spice behind it. Putting that in the <laughs> Maybe that's what the Patriots should do if they lose uh, our savior, Tom Brady. I don't even want to entertain that idea. All right. <laughs> so my Trinidad Scorpion, so as you mentioned, a lot of D1 college athletes are in this. But I think the XFL wants to be able to increase its elite talent. You know, they want to be able to get the best of the best that the NFL has. And I have the way they can do that. And that is to break down the barriers to banned substances. And I'm not talking about PEDs, Liam. I'm talking about more friendly to Snoop Dogg and Josh Gordon. The NFL has been too stringent on its policies with cannabis as it's being coming legalized across the country. And I think if the XFL decided that it is legal for the players to take part in that specific drug, they would walk to the XFL and leave the NFL behind. At least some players would. That is how they can really get the elite talent they're looking for. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. You know what? I think it would work, Seymour. I think they would get Josh Gordon at least. I also, I mean, I'm rooting for him. Maybe, oh, you know what? If, if there was a, like, an opinion beyond Trinidad Scorpion, they should let the players just do it on the field. Then, then they would really just break in the elite talent. And then they could interview them on the field while they do that. Oh, gosh, that would be it. Th- then I'd watch those interviews. <laughs> it could be, it could be like, uh, it could be like the Hot Wings show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So that is our, that is our spice fight. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments. It is time for Beer of the Week. Now, I am going to go first because, Liam, I chose a beer. This beer is known by all. I'm talking about Natural Light, <laughs> also known as Natty Light. That's my beer of the week. <laughs> now, <laughs> hold on. So, this is Natty Light is 4.2% ABV, and I don't think it even qualifies for the bitterness scale, so I'm not even going to give a number. <laughs> now, listen, if you're a college student and you're at a party and you can no longer taste things because of how much fun you're having, then this is the beer for you. It is the perfect blend of water and alcohol. <laughs> you 
don't want to even attempt to drink this until you've had a few. You just start, you're on your final couple. You just want to end your night kind of on a nice loose note, and you're going to go and take the natty light. But if we're being honest, don't buy this for a college party. No one's going to drink it. They're just going to pour it out into the into the plants because it will give them more hydration than normal water. If I could give negative beers for this point, point for this beer, I would. Honestly, this Natty Light was spiked seltzer before it was popular. <laughs> I looked into a little bit of history, just a, just a quick Googling, not too much. But apparently, Natty Light was the first beer sent into space in 2011. I don't know why that <laughs> happened, but it did. <laughs> so, that's all I have on the history of natural light. That's my beer of the week. Wow, I had no idea about that. Wow. It, it, it went to space before we did. Just kidding. It's all a sham. Um, if the aliens awesome. find that floating out there, they're going to judge us so hard, man. <laughs> They're going to think very very lowly of our human race. True. My beer of the week is a little different. It's a little more opaque or, I guess, darker in color. It's not, you know, just clear and see-through like water. Um, so it's not as clear as that. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, mine is the Milk Stout Nitro from Left Hand Brewing Company. So this beer... It's 6% alcohol, and as far as IBUs, there's only only 25, so it's not too bitter. Actually, the least bitter I've uh, had on my beer of the week. So first of all, this is one that you must drink out of a glass. Uh, it is because when you give it a nice hard pour into a glass, it is going to be topped with a very pronounced but very, very creamy and thick head uh, that is essential for your milk stout nitro. So the beer itself is incredibly smooth. Initially, it is sweet, uh, and then it kind of hits with a roastier finish. As far as dark beers go, it is actually quite light and quite pleasant. I even think and know from people I've talked to uh, that it's quite pleasant even for someone that you know doesn't really like dark beer. Uh, personally, it is one of my go-to dark beers, especially if I'm looking for something uh, especially tasty, smooth, and light. So a little bit more. Uh, also, I give this a 4.5 out of 5. So very, very high rated in my book. So Left Hand Brewing Company started in 1990 when Dick Dore was gifted a home brew kit from his brother. Uh, it's funny what something like that's going to lead to, an entire brewing company. Uh, so Dick developed a passion for brewing high-quality beer and eventually teamed up with his friend from college, Eric Wallace. Together, they founded Left Hand Brewing Company and opened up business in January of 1994. They started business and continue to do business in Longmont, Colorado. It was actually the first craft brewery to release a bottle of nitro nitrogenated beer. So as I mentioned, Milk Stout Nitro. So this is a, a beer that's infused with nitrogen, and it gives the beer an extra smooth and pleasant mouthfeel. Um, and they actually have a bunch of beers on tap and that they distribute that are nitro. Currently, there's nine on their website, but I know they've had more than that. It's just an awesome, awesome beer. I have not been to their one tap room slash brewery in Longmont, Colorado, but I really, you know, am dying to go at some point in the coming years. So that's my beer of the week. Oh, that sounds delicious. The people are going to have to tell us which which beer they would rather drink. I think that's going to be a tough choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, that is everything we have. Next week, we're going to go over the Western playoff teams and how we think they can make their name for themselves. Anything else you'd like to touch on before we sign off here, Liam? No, I would just uh, remind the people, you know, where they can, you know, ask any questions they may have, uh, tell us which beer they like better, you know, that sort of thing. All right, that is the T T M Lee podcast at gmail.com and I will put that email in the description of the episode we'd like to thank everyone for listening as always and, uh, have a good week and we'll catch you guys later